Hello again. Welcome back to the Backroom Ballads. I'm Riley. Today is the first real episode of the podcast. Today, we have the first two major ballads of my grandfather's experiences all the way back in 1954. One named Lucky Leon, and the next story named The Widow. Enjoy, and let's get right into our first story. I was a few months shy of being 25 in 1954 when my training at the police academy was over, and I was assigned to a precinct in Queens. A month later, on a hot July day, I was taken to a house in Jackson Heights that looked like all the others, except that in the garage, in the trunk of a new Buick, were the remains of a suicide who had been missing for eight days. In the summer heat, the corpse was badly decayed, and the smell of it hit me as I walked down the driveway. Leon Levesque had been a pastry chef on one of the best cruise liners, and when he didn't show up as scheduled for a departure, his friend had called us home to see what was wrong. What was wrong was that Leon's wife had gone to Reno to get a divorce, and he had gotten badly depressed over it, to the point that he committed suicide to end the pain. Leon's sister had been upstairs cleaning his apartment when his friend had called asking where Leon was. She was shocked when she heard he had missed the boat. Where could he be? Was his new car in the garage? Had he been in an accident? She ran down to the first floor apartment and got the garage key to see if his new car was gone, but it was still there. But the garage smelled terrible. It was so strong she backed up to get control of herself. A neighbor, walking his dog, saw Leon's sister peering into the garage and he also smelled the putrefaction. So he walked up the driveway to see if he could help. The neighbor had been in the war and he had smelled death before and he knew the pungent smell of a decayed body. He looked around the garage, then through the car windows, then under it, then he turned and told Leon's sister that whoever, or whatever it was, was in the trunk. She took the second set of keys and opened the trunk, and there was her brother, or what remained of him after being in the closed apartment for eight hot days and nights in July. My job was to search Leon's remains for valuables, under a sergeant's supervision, and to record all that was found, then to voucher it in a station house where it would be safeguarded for whoever had the legal authority to claim it. Searching any dead body was a troubling business, but searching Leon was especially messy and disgusting. He was literally falling apart. The skin on his ring finger came with his wedding ring as I took it. There were no facial features remaining. Leon was a mass of worms. When we finally finished, I helped get him into a large body bag and into the morgue wagon. Then they took him away, but the smell remained. In that blistering heat, there was not a window open in that neighborhood, as residents had to get it out of their noses and out of their minds. There was a total of $1,200 in Leon's wallet, a gold wedding band, his driver's license, and his social security card. He had a watch on his wrist, but we couldn't get it off, and we also removed a suicide note that was sticking out of his shirt pocket. It was addressed to his wife, Mimi, who had just left him six weeks before. It was still legible, though badly stained with his body fluids. It read, Dearest Mimi, nothing makes sense without your love. I cannot live without you. God, I'm so lonely. Love, Lee. Leon Levisku, not married until he was 45 years old. By that time, he had saved a lot of money. Sister told me he was a shy and quiet man who loved Mimi more than life. After Mimi left him, he was unable to sleep, and he hardly ever spoke to anyone. Some people are like that. They are totally devoted to one person. When the person is gone, they don't want to go on. It certainly was that way with Leon. He had obviously gone into the garage, closed the doors, started the car motor, crawled into the trunk, and pulled the door down until the latch caught and locked. Nobody heard the car running, so he died of carbon monoxide acidification. The motor must have run for a long time, stopping only when it ran out of gasoline. Almost three weeks later, 
I was in the station house when Mimi Levescu came in to get Leon's property. She was a good-looking woman, well-dressed and younger than she was. She'd obviously taken very good care of herself. When the desk officer took the court papers that officially released Leon's property to his widow, Mimi. The divorce had not been finalized when Leon had killed himself, so he saved her the trouble of going to the probate court and waiting a year or two to get his money. Widow Levescu signed for all the items and money we found on Leon. She showed no sorrow. There were no wrinkles of concern on her brow, no dark circles under her eyes, no quiet nervousness that could be considered care or sadness. She was oblivious to everyone and everything, other than the cash she counted so very carefully. When the formality was over, she threw everything in her purse, turned, and walked across the marble floor, with her four-inch heels clicking noisily. I was amazed at her coldness, and she hadn't even said thank you. Back then, I was inexperienced and innocent enough to think that Leon couldn't kill himself for a woman who didn't care for him at all. How could such a thing happen? And who would speak for Leon? Who would let his cold wife know she lost someone who loved her more than life? Who would stop her from getting everything he owned without asking her why she had been the cause of death? No grief, no wishing it had all been different. Well, someone had to speak for Leon, so I hustled out of the station house and caught her before she drove away in Leon's Buick. She was behind the wheels, so I leaned over a little. Mrs. Levescu, I'm the officer who uh, took your husband out of the trunk, I said. Oh, that must have been a rotten job. Arty was badly decomposed. She went on. I'd have the entire car fumigated and scrubbed and the trunk repainted before I'd drive it. But it's all right now. Who cares about the car, I thought. Leon must have been a nice guy, I said. After all, you married him. She looked at me with that cold way she had. Yeah, nice, but as dull as and boring as a concrete wall. But he loved me. In fact, he made it easy for me. I don't need a divorce now. Instead of getting half of what he had, I'll get it all, even the house. She said. Wanted to insult her, but I didn't think it would matter. Well, your husband sure loved you. In fact, he loved you so much he couldn't live without you, I said, turning to walk away. But she yelled, For your information, Leon was a social creep, didn't want any kids, had only one friend, and had no interest but me in his French pastries. He never laughed, he was on that ship half the time. It was simply not enough for me. She gunned the motor to let me know she was leaving. Who would speak for Leon? What will ever be enough for you, Mrs. Levescu? Will anything ever be enough for you? I yelled above the motor as she pulled away and drove down the street. Suddenly, the new Buick stopped and she backed it up. I don't know what's enough for me, but you can bet I'm going to find out, she said. As she drove down the block, I could see the back of the car and the trunk that had been permeated with Leon's rotten body. I was learning that real justice was rare. My cynicism was increasing and my innocence was fading. For months after, I was looking suspiciously at all Buick trunks. Imagine too often the smell of death and decay was in my nose again. As long as I worked in that precinct, I avoided going down that street where Leon's house was located. Some things have a long shelf life and never seem to end well. That was the first of many sad and bad endings I was to witness through the years. first precinct. Whenever I worked a day tour, if the precinct cells held prisoners who were charged with a felony, quite often I was assigned to get the prisoners to the headquarters building in Manhattan for the morning lineup. Every morning, the wagons pulled up on the street in the back of headquarters full of prisoners from each borough who had been arrested for some sort of felony, while detectives brought victims and witnesses to look at men arrested for serious crimes. 
I would travel in the police wagon used to transport the prisoners and usually go back to the precinct by public transportation. While it was interesting to me for a while, like everything else in life, our interest wanes and we've had enough. But I recall one event that happened at the morning lineup that I can't seem to forget. Occasionally, a prisoner would be identified as the man who had committed a crime against a victim, but for the most part, the morning lineup was a flop, though it had gone on for more than a century. The theory behind the lineup was that criminals repeat their crimes wherever they are, so if they do it in one borough, they will do it in any other borough. I think it was mainly a way to harass criminals and belittle them at the lineup. One morning, as we pulled in the back of headquarters in Manhattan with a wagon load of prisoners, I noticed an old woman dressed in black standing by the curb. She ran to our wagon and asked me, Is this the Brooklyn wagon? Is this it? Then as she peered into the wagon, she continued, Is my Anthony in there? Is he in there? And she kept on saying it again and again. Finally, one of the headquarters police guards came over and moved her away so we could get into the building. I noticed she did the same thing to each wagon as it pulled in the back of the building. She was dressed totally in black with the dress, coat, and shawl used by Italian widows who are mourning for their dead husbands. When the Brooklyn wagon finally pulled up, she recognized the driver and yelled, Marty? Marty? Is my Anthony in your wagon? Oh god, I hope he's in there. Is he in there? Is he? Marty shook his head no, but said nothing. Just the same, she eyeballed every man we took to see if Anthony was there. Her name is Lino Morscogno. She's a widow, alright. But she doesn't wear that black outfit for her husband. It's for her son, Anthony. 30 years ago, her 18-year-old son was bagged with suspicion of grand larceny auto with two other punks in Brooklyn. He got collared at night and was supposed to be in the next morning lineup here at headquarters the next day. She was told he would be there that Tuesday morning, so she came here and waited for him that first day, or so I was told by the guys who retired. She waited patiently because the sun rose and set on her Anthony. But the Brooklyn wagon never came. It had been hit by an oil truck and fell over sideways, killing her Anthony, but not hurting his friends at all. When they told her, she cracked and refused to believe it. So every Tuesday, for the last 33 years, she's been coming here hoping to find her Anthony on the Brooklyn wagon. While she expects to find him here, she wears black to mourn him. That's what a mother's love can do. Joe finished the story and saw the shock on my face. Then he put his hand on my shoulder and said, George, you'll see enough to make you cry, so try to laugh hard and often. He smiled that wonderful smile that some men have when it comes from deep within them making the mean streets a little less mean and the dark days a little less dark. When I got back to my precinct that day, asked to roll call men, I asked if an officer would give me an assignment on the Tuesdays that would prevent me from going over to the morning lineup in Manhattan headquarters. He turned and looked oddly at me. Yeah, I'll do that. But tell me what's wrong with the morning lineup on Tuesdays that nobody wants to go, he asked. I was so certain he wouldn't understand that I got out of there before I had to tell him about Mrs. Miscogno and her Anthony. Joe, the old timer was right. Mother's life is like that. Thank you to everyone who stuck around long enough to hear these two stories, Lucky Leon and The Widow, both sad ballads that deal with the loss and sadness you have to endure in the NYPD. Anyway, thank you to everyone, and we will be back here next Thursday for another episode on the Backroom Ballads. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Backroom Ballads, brought to you by me, Riley. Editing for today's episode by Parsh, and our theme song is New York by U2. Special thanks to friends, family, and others, and we'll see you back here soon.